get going here in just a minute. I promise. We are continuing today in the the story of Ruth and Boaz. We are adding Boaz to the story today. <clears throat> Last week, as just a quick review, we saw that a, na- a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, <clears throat> had left Bethlehem because there was this great famine and there was no food. So they ended up in a country called Moab. Sometime after they arrived, Elimelech, the father, died. While they were there, the two sons married women from Moab, and the names of their wives were Orpah and Ruth. And then after some time passes, both of the sons die. So all that's left now is Naomi, who's in a foreign country, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. After ten years of famine, the famine starts to subside, and Naomi hears that it's coming to an end, so she says, well, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because that's where all my folks are. They said folks back then, too. All my people are. And so she goes back to Bethlehem, and she tells Orpah and Ruth, look, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And they said, okay, we'll go with you. And even though Naomi insists they stay in Moab, they insist that they're going to go with her. So they all head off toward Bethlehem. And along the way, all along the way, Naomi is still trying to convince them to go back to Moab. That's where your family is. That's where your heritage is. Just go back to Moab. Eventually, she convinces Orpah to go back, but Ruth says, I'm not going back. The only thing that will separate me from you is death. So they head on to Bethlehem, the two of them. They arrive in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And that brings us to our our scripture today. A little bit of background before we get into the scripture reading. In that day, the law taught that if a married man died with no children the responsibility fell on his brother to marry the widow and raise a son for his brother. And that way the family name would continue on. A person who did this in the New International Version is referred to as a kinsman redeemer because what he was doing, he was a a relative that was redeeming the family line to make sure that it continued on. And we'll start reading in Ruth 2 and 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. Boaz was a a well-to-do landowner in Bethlehem. In fact, the King James Version says that Boaz was a mighty man of wealth. So he was doing okay. And he was, although he wasn't a brother of Ruth's late husband, he was a relative from Naomi's late husband. And so technically, he could fulfill that law of the kinsman-redeemer thing. Hang on, because that's important, because we're going to come back to that. Since Naomi and Ruth needed food, remember, they had no husbands, they had no jobs, they had nothing except just the two of each other. And since they had no food, Ruth said, I'm going to go out to the the fields where the workers are harvesting, because it was the barley harvest. And the owners of the fields at that time were required by the law of Moses to allow certain provisions during the harvest for widows and for the poor. In fact, let's go back to Leviticus. This is under Moses' law. Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. This is the law that Moses gave. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. 
I am the Lord your God. Now, God made this provision so that there would be something provided for these people who could not provide for themselves. And so even though Ruth knew that she couldn't get hired as a harvester, she knew that, again, the poor and the widows were allowed to, to go into the fields that had already been harvested. And whatever was left behind by the harvesters could then be picked up by these people and used for food. Obviously, when the harvesters went through the fields picking barley, however they did that, um, there was some that was left behind. And the gleaners, as they were called, could come behind the harvesters and whatever was left on the stalks or whatever they could pick up from the ground, they could keep. And that was called gleaning. The more godly farmers, such as Boaz, would often have the harvesters to leave more behind than was normal. They would tell their, their people, look, there's going to be gleaners out there. Don't pick every stalk completely bare. Leave a little extra for those that are going to need something. And it wasn't in their best financial interest to do that, but they did it as a way to help those in need. One thing I would like to point out here, although this was a form of charity, those that received the charity still had to work. They didn't get to stay home and the, the farmer bring it to them. They actually had to go out and work. So even though it was charity, it still required something on their part. And not only did this create, not only did it not create a, an attitude of entitlement, it also allowed the poor to maintain a sense of dignity because they were going out and actually earning what they got. So Ruth goes out and she begins to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. And as it turns out, guess who owned the field? Boaz. If you guessed Boaz, you were correct. So while Ruth is out gleaning in the field, she's out there following behind the harvesters. Guess who comes driving up in his big tricked-out Escalade? If you guess Boaz again, then you would be correct again. So here comes Boaz. He comes pulling up. He gets out of the car, and he looks out there, and he asks his foreman, Wow, who's that? Actually, in, in verse 5, he said, Whose young woman is that? Close. And the, the foreman tells Boaz, Oh, her, that's, um, that's that woman from Moab that came back to Bethlehem with Naomi. She was married to Naomi's son, and when Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she came back with her. And he tells Boaz, yeah, this morning when we're all getting ready to go to work, she shows up. She asked if she could glean in the fields behind the harvesters, and I told her yes. And you know what, Boaz, i got to tell you, she's been out there all day long working. And she's only taken one break, and that was she went over to the shelter just for a little bit. Read it, it says that, I'm telling you. So Boaz is like really impressed. Here's this woman that has come out. She's not even an Israelite. She's from a foreign country. And she's out there going behind the harvesters and just picking up food so that she has something to eat. And he is so impressed that he didn't want her to go to another field the next day. So listen what he told her in Ruth 2, verses 8 through 12. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. And don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you, 
And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz didn't want her to leave. In fact, he offered a little incentive. Just, just stay right up there behind the girls that are working. And if you get tired, that's okay. Just go get something to drink over here. He says it's for her protection. And possibly it was. There could have been an alternative motive there for Boaz. So he said, I've instructed the men not to touch you. And Ruth hears this and she's like, why would you do this for me? You don't know me. I'm not even from around here. And yet you're being so kind to me. Why, why would you do that? And Boaz tells her, this is, this is something I want us to really grasp hold of. He tells her that I have heard about you and what you've done for your mother-in-law since your husband died. He heard of her faithfulness. He heard of her love. And her reputation preceded her to a point that he felt like he had to offer some kind of kindness because this was just such a fantastic person. And even though Moab, uh, Naomi and Ruth had only been back from Moab for a short period of time, it was obvious that Ruth's character had made news around the community and had spread among the people that what a great person she was. And Boaz tells Ruth that he knew that she left everything behind, her father, her mother, her homeland, to come and live among strangers. And in that day, for someone to leave their homeland was a big deal. It wasn't like today to where, you know, people might move four or five times in their lifetime. Back then, generation after generation after generation stayed in the same place. And you stayed with your same kind of people. And here is a woman that came from basically a heathen nation to live with the Israelites. And she left everything behind. And not only that, she had also put her faith in the God of her mother-in-law. She had not just said, well, I got no place else to go, so I'll just go to, I'll go to Bethlehem. It wasn't just that. It was she saw what the God of the Israelites could do. And at some point she said, from now on, your God will be my God. And I think this is where, where we fall short sometimes. We see and we hear of the goodness of God. And obviously Ruth had seen and heard of the goodness of God from her, her husband when he was alive and from her mother-in-law and father-in-law. And yet, when we face a difficult situation, often we begin to doubt. And we, we start wondering if things really are going to be okay. But here in this story, we see again that God knew exactly what Ruth needed in her life. God knew that if she stayed in Moab that her future was uncertain. 
So she ends up going with her mother-in-law to a strange country, and now she's being blessed by somebody she doesn't even know. And we look at that and go, yeah, that just happened. I believe that it was divine intervention that led Ruth to stay with her mother-in-law, Naomi. I believe that it was divine intervention that led her to the fields owned by Boaz. I don't think it was just luck that she ended up there with Boaz. I believe that it was divine intervention that Boaz showed up that day that she was working in the field and saw her. I also believe that it was Ruth's hard work and her reputation of faithfulness, not only to Naomi but to the God of Israel, that caused Boaz to take notice of her and treat her in the way he did. And if we look at this story, it all started with a famine and something bad that happened. And it forced these people to go to a foreign country. But now we see God working in this plan that didn't start off very good, that now here's both of these women have lost their husbands. They're widows. They're in a country now back where they've been gone from. One, Naomi had been gone for over 10 years and Ruth had never been there. And yet they go out to glean the fields with the poor people and the widows and they're being blessed by this very wealthy man named Boaz. Coincidence? A lot of people would read that story and go, yeah, well, just sometimes good things happen. I don't believe that this is a situation where just good things happen. I believe that God had his hand in every event from the famine that made them go to Moab to the determination of Ruth to stay with Naomi to the place that she decided to go and glean that day. It was all in God's plan. And Boaz realizes that he can't repay her for her faithfulness all by himself. And in verse 12, he asks God, he says, May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I believe this speaks to, to Ruth's commitment to the God of Israel. Everybody in town obviously knew that she had made a commitment to the God of Israel. But the, this part of the story doesn't end here. At mealtime, Boaz invites Ruth to come over and eat with his people. And the Bible says that Ruth ate all she wanted and had some left over. Now remember that had some left over part for just a minute. We'll come back to it. After the meal, it says that Ruth went back to work gleaning behind the harvesters. Listen what Boaz told the harvesters, Ruth 2, 15, and 16. As she got up to glean... Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. What he's saying is, I know she's supposed to follow behind you. If she gets kind of out of line and she goes over where the good stuff is, don't say anything to her and embarrass her. Just let her go. Instead of doing that, every now and then take some stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Not only were they to allow her to pick from the area where they were harvesting, he told them every now and then, even take some of the stuff that you've harvested and pull it out of yours and just lay it on the ground for her. How about that? Not only did he let her glean in his field and tell her that she would be safe there, he told his people, 
just throw out a little bit extra for her. If you see she's following behind you, just take some out, and that way she'll have plenty. Isn't it amazing how God is able to work these situations out? And again, a lot of people would say, well, maybe he just liked her, he thought she was good looking or whatever. No, it wasn't that. It, it could have been. But it was also that God was leading him to say, I want you to take care of this person. Later in verse 18, we again see the kindness and love that Ruth had for her mother-in-law. Remember back when it said that she ate all she wanted and then there was leftover? In verse 18, it says that she brought what was left over back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, so she could eat too. This is a relationship. This is a relationship between two people that was close enough that they cared about the physical needs of, like, hunger. And she loved her mother-in-law enough that she would go out and glean behind the harvesters with the poor people and the rest of the widows and bring stuff back to her mother-in-law so she could eat. Remember, the reason that Ruth went out in the first place is because they were poor. They didn't have any food. She really didn't have any choice but to go out and work. And they were hungry. So here she's had this great meal that Boaz provided and there was some left over. And she puts it in a doggy bag and takes it to Naomi. Why? Because it had been provided for her. And now she wanted to provide for someone else. God had provided for their needs and then some. She not only now had the grain that she had gathered, but also she had a free meal, and Naomi had a meal. And we think, well, that's not that big a deal. If you were hungry, it's a very big deal. When God blesses us, stay with me for just a second. When God blesses us, it's not always with a flash of fire and smoke. More often, it comes through another person. God has blessed me many, many times, and yet I have never seen Him come down in this bright light and this flash of fire and smoke and just hand something to me. I've never seen it happen. More often than not, it is through another person. Boaz blessed Ruth. Ruth blessed Naomi. We bless each other. We are used of God to reach out to people that are hurting and to people that have needs, and God calls us to do the same thing for other people. And when God blesses us, it won't always be in the form of we're walking along and we see this big bag and we open it up and it's full of million-dollar bills. That's not the way God blesses us all the time. He's never blessed me that way, but it would be nice. But one of the many compound names that the Hebrew people used in that day was Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is translated as the Lord will provide. That same God, Jehovah Jireh, is our God today. And the Lord will provide. How will He provide? I don't know. 
But I've heard testimony of people. I've seen what God has done in my life. And I've heard people say, I didn't know where it was going to come from. I remember Sister Helton years and years ago, a precious lady. She always sat right there. And she was a widow on a fixed income. And I've heard her stand more than once and talk about how she didn't know where the money was going to come from for certain things. And she'd walk out to her mailbox and open it up and there would be a check from somebody. God provides. But He used somebody to provide. And I want us to grasp this today because we are all for the providing part. If, if I ask anyone here today, do you want God to provide for you? Absolutely. Do you want Him to use you to provide for someone else? I'll get back to you. And here is this God that will provide, Jehovah Jireh, and for Ruth and Naomi, He certainly has done just that. But what about us today? The promise is to us today too. Look at Philippians 4 and 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I love that scripture. But keep this in mind too. Although God provided, it also took some perseverance on Ruth's part. She could have stayed home that day and told Naomi, what's the use? We're poor, we're widows, we don't have anything. I think I'll just stay here today and watch Oprah. For God to do what He did for Ruth, it took someone that was faithful and someone that was willing to put forth effort to get what God had for her. Now don't write me off as being crazy yet because I want to read this scripture, James 2 and 17. In the same way, faith by itself, is, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So if Ruth would have said, yeah, I believe in your God of Israel, and I'm just going to sit right here and watch TV until He blesses us. And she could have done that, but that's not what she did. She got up, went out to the field, and she gleaned, and guess what? God blessed her. And James writes all these hundreds of years later, faith by itself, faith is good. But by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. It also took someone like Boaz, who had a giving heart, that not only prayed for God to bless Ruth, he also allowed God to use him to bless her. Should we do the same? Let's look back in that same chapter of James again and addressing this subject that, just like Boaz here, in verses 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does, not, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? I love that. James, I mean, that's just as down to earth as it can be. He said, you see somebody with a need and you go, 
yeah, I know you're, I know you're really in need. Yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Good luck with that. And you walk away. And James is saying, what good is that? Yeah, I wish you well. Stay warm. Stay fed. I'll pray for you. And maybe down deep inside that person says, I'd rather you get me something to eat. You can pray for me too. But I'm hungry. It's cold out here and I'm shivering. Maybe throw a blanket or something. No, I'm just going to pray for you. Now, I'm not taking anything away from prayer. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with prayer. There's nothing wrong with believing for that person that God will bless them. But if we have the ability, maybe it's God that is using us or trying to use us to bless that person. Not just pray for them and tell them good luck and send them on their way. James looks at that situation and says, what good is that? Those aren't my words. I believe what James was saying here was he was restating what Boaz had done. I won't just wish you well. I will do what I can to help. And it doesn't just apply to material things. Stay with me for a second. In our day, I believe it applies to salvation as well. How hard is it to say, God, I want you to fill up this church, fill up High Point Church with souls that are hungry and seeking after God. Yes, we need to do that. And it's a noble gesture. And it's true that we need to pray that way. But are we willing to go out to the field to where the harvest is? Remember Ruth. Naomi, we're hungry. We don't have any food. And I believe in the God of Israel that, that we serve. But I'm going to go out to the field and get us something to eat. And now we jump forward to today, and we can sit and talk about, yeah, we, we believe God's going to fill this place up. Yes, God's he's just so capable of doing it. Yes, He is. But have we left the house to go out to the field? exactly right no I, I'm not going to go out I'm just believing God's going to do it yes he will but remember what Jesus told his disciples as he commissioned them to continue in the ministry that he had started in Matthew 28 19 the most powerful words of that are the first two words that say therefore go He didn't say, therefore, just believe. He said, therefore, go. He commissioned them to go and do a work. He say, well, you don't believe in prayer and faith. Yes, I do. But I believe what James said is true, too, that faith without works is dead. I believe too often... Everybody hold on. I believe that too often, 
as believers, we are satisfied to be just that. Believers. Not goers or doers, but believers. You a believer? Absolutely. Are you a goer? Not really. I'm just a believer. James 1, 22 through 25. Do not... See, these are not my words. That's why I love reading straight from the Bible. Do not merely, merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do it, do what it says, is like a man who looks at, a, at his face in a mirror. And after going, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. In this story, there is trust in God, there is effort on the part of Ruth, and there is giving by Boaz to someone he doesn't even know. And that doesn't take away from God one bit. What it does is show us that God uses people to reach out and bless other people. Another scripture in the book of Philippians, in the same chapter we read from earlier, Philippians 4 and 19. And my God, this is the one we all love. We can jump and do a little happy dance when we read this. And my God will meet all your needs according to His glorious riches and glory. We love that. But the same writer wrote in verse 9, <clears throat> Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. And jump down to verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. There's that do word again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I think that insinuates to us that there is something required of us to go do. It doesn't mean we do it on our own. It means that we set out to go do it and God will give us the strength to finish the task. But it does require that we do. God will bless us. God has promised to provide for us. We are required to be doers. Not through my ability, but through the one who gives us our strength. So we go back to Naomi and Ruth, and we see that one day Naomi's talking to Ruth, and she says, uh, Ruth, shouldn't we be looking for a husband for you? You know, come to think of it, that guy Boaz that owns the field where you've been working, he's a relative of my late husband. Hmm. Now I'm just thinking out loud here, Ruth. Even though he's not your late husband's brother, he is a relative of my husband, and maybe he'll fulfill the obligation, that obligation where if a man died, his widow had no children, his brother was to marry the widow and raise a son, and, you know, maybe he would do that. Just thinking out loud here. And then she follows up by 
telling Ruth exactly what to do. You can read all the details in third chapter of Ruth. It's kind of a chick flick kind of thing. So we'll skip past that. So Ruth follows the directions, goes to Boaz and tells him that he qualifies as the kinsman redeemer, to which Boaz does not seem to be disappointed at all. And there was only one detail that stood in the way. And that detail was that there was actually someone in Bethlehem that was a closer relative than Boaz, which means technically he had dibs on Ruth. So Boaz goes to the elders of the city and he brings this man up there and he confronts this man, this closer relative than he is to Ruth, and he confronts him and this is what he says. He's, this guy's not, he doesn't give his name, so we're going to call him Bob. In Ruth chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, this is what Boaz says. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. This shows that he was kind of a powerful guy. If he could just go to the elders and say, ten of you, come here, have a seat over there. And then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Bob, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. And he's saying, there's this piece of land that, that Naomi's daughter-in-law has, and she's getting ready to sell it. You're first in line to buy that land, because you're the closest relative. So I'm going to give you a chance to buy it. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So if you're not going to go buy that piece of land from whoever that girl is, that Ruth or whatever her name is, then I'll buy it. And so Bob says, you know what, I'll, I'll do that. I will, I will redeem it, he said. And Boaz says to Bob, okay, fair enough, land's yours. And then in verse 5, he says, oh, by the way, did I mention the day that you buy the land, you also have to marry her daughter, daughter-in-law? Ooh. After hearing that, Bob looks at Boaz and says, uh, you know what? I just remembered I can't do that. I got this, uh, I got this thing I have to do. So, um, yeah, you go ahead and buy that piece of land. That'll be fine with me. Now, remember, he had ten witnesses here. He was smart. And so Bob walks off and Boaz is going. Now here's the really cool part. Verses 7 and 8. Now earlier, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Bob, goes to Boaz and he goes, uh, here, you can go buy it. And he hands him his sandal. 
That's kind of different. Pretty cool, though. And then verses 9 through 11. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. And I'm sure then Bob's going, What? I didn't know it was her. <laughs> so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Ruth 4, verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. And I'm sure Naomi's thinking, I don't care if he becomes famous. I'm just glad that the family line's going to go on. Right? He will renew your life and sustain you in old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. And who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. And this is the coolest part. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So we see that God had blessed Boaz and Ruth and blessed their marriage and given them a son. And now after the loss of her husband and her two sons, Naomi, the grandma, feels that now there's hope. She had lost all hope. Remember when she went back to, to Bethlehem after they came back from Moab to Bethlehem, she said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because it, it means bitter. The Lord has frowned on me. He has taken His blessing away from me. I'm just, I'm just a tired old lady and I don't have any family. And now look what God has done. He's given her a son, a grandson. And now through this child, all of a sudden she has hope. She has joy. And the child's name was Obed, which means servant or worshiper. And when we look at this entire story of Ruth, it wasn't just about food. It wasn't just about a famine that caused them to go to Moab. It wasn't just about the famine was ending and they got there at the time of the barley harvest and they were hungry, so Ruth went out to a field to glean in the field. It wasn't just about that, although those things were important. While this was some of the reasons... The main reason was to show the events in the family of King David, Ruth's great-grandson. And we look at that and say, wow, that's incredible. 
there was a plan. It didn't just all happen. Not only did God bless Ruth by giving her another inheritance and an inheritance in, or another husband and an inheritance in Israel, she also became an ancestor of David and ultimately an ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Matthew 1 and 5 actually mentions Boaz and Ruth by name in the genealogy of Jesus. I read that and I just... God, you are just so great that you have all these things under control. And the family tree of, of Jesus also lists, remember the prostitute Rahab from Jericho as one of Jesus' ancestors. And I believe with including all of these stories in the genealogy up to the time of Jesus shows us that God is always in control. He is even in control when the events of our life seem chaotic or hopeless. He's still in control. And what it really shows is that God uses ordinary people. Sometimes people that we would not, they would not be our first choice as to who God would use for something great. Rahab lived in a city of idolaters and she was a prostitute on top of that. Yet she was one of David's ancestors, one of Jesus' ancestors. Ruth was a, a heathen from the land of Moab, but there was a famine that caused this family to move to Moab where she met her husband. Not a likely choice by most people. Who would have guessed that this young woman from Moab and a faithful older Israelite man would be the ancestors of King David and also of an even greater king, Jesus? And we see this common thread that runs through the entire book of Ruth it's one of how God uses relationships that His people forge with each other to promote His good and His glory throughout the earth. At, think of all the opportunities there were for the relationships to break off and those events wouldn't have happened. Naomi says, Orpah, Ruth, I'm going back to Bethlehem. All they had to say was, good luck, we're staying here. But there was a strong bond, there was a relationship that caused Ruth to say, I'm going with you. That's right. You know, what I, I think the reason God chooses people sometimes to do these things, the, the people He chooses, is because if He chose the likely suspect, we would look at it and say, what's the big deal? Of course that person could do that. 
But he takes these unlikely people and he forms relationships with his people. And here's this, these godly people move to a foreign land. They reach out to Ruth. They move back. Boaz is this godly man. He reaches out to Ruth. Guess what? God placed all this in place. But it took people reaching out to others in order to be the blessing. And it takes us today as believers, and not just believers, but doers, to not just be content with saying, you know what, I'm content with what I have here, and I'll just, I'll just, I'll just keep what I've got. God wants to use us to be the ones that go out into a world of people that are, are, are dying and going to hell to tell them about the love of God. Not just to tell them they're going to hell. I'm not saying that. But to tell them that there is something better than what they're seeking after. You're, you're out there in the world looking for all of this stuff, going out and partying and doing all the things that you do. There's something greater than that. That's not true happiness. That's temporary pleasure. True happiness is only found in Jesus Christ. And let me introduce you to this person because he's changed my life. We love the part about God will bless us. We love the part about God will bless others. We need to love the part about God will use us to bless others as much as the rest of it. And when we grasp hold of that concept, when we grasp hold of, of not just praying and believing for God to, to, to send people to High Point Church, yes, we need to do that. Yes, we need to pray. Yes, we need to fast. Yes, we need to believe. But we also need to go out into the world in our everyday life to people that are hurting and say, I have the answer for you. It's not in me. It's not in all the things you're looking at. I feel that God is speaking to us and He's speaking to His people today saying that it's time that we stop trying to pick who we think is worthy of the Gospel. It's not our choice. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. Whoever. The guy at the gas station. The guy at Subway. The person at, at Publix that checks out and, and does your groceries and all that. You don't have to be obnoxious. But I believe when people see the love of Christ in us, there will be something that they will be drawn to and they'll say, I've got to ask you a question. What, what is it that's going on with you? I see something different here. You go, oh, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does. Because people are looking for something. 
Everybody in this world is looking for something. You wonder why the, the, there's all these things out there that bring in billions and billions of dollars for entertainment for people because they're looking for an answer to something that will satisfy them. God doesn't ask us to, to necessarily work miracles in other people's lives. He doesn't call us to fix every problem in the world. Because if you try to do that, you're going to be very unhappy because you can't fix all the problems in the world. But He calls us to do what we can. He calls us to do what we are called to do. If He calls us to go speak to someone, we need to just go speak to them. If He calls us to go pray with that person, then we need to pray with that person. If He calls us to send somebody a, a, a letter or an email or pick up the phone and call somebody and say, you know what, I'm praying for you. If He calls us to do that, then we need to do it. We don't have to perform miracles and smoke and fire and, and see all these flashes of light and fireworks and all those things. Sometimes it's real simple. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And I'm not just saying that. I really am praying for you because I believe God wants to work in your life. What He does ask us to do is that as our lives intersect with others each and every day, that we intentionally seek to convey His comfort, His love, and His patient grace to those we come in contact with. God bless you.